I want to welcome everybody back from the holidays. We've taken a few weeks off as we've done a couple of uh, Advent sermons. Today we return uh, to the book of Mark where we are studying the life of Jesus Christ. So if you're visiting today, we're glad that you're here. We've been looking at Mark since, since August. Now today we come to a, a text uh, that for some you're familiar with, but it might seem to be a fanciful story. Right? Jesus Christ walking upon the waters, and you'll probably hear sermons about how he comes to us uh, in the storms of life, and I think that's true. But maybe for some of us, we'd say that's what you teach children. In the flannel board, Jesus uh, walking upon the waters. But how is that really relevant in my own life? Are these things true? Well, might I suggest to you there's a lot of explanations. People have tried to make natural explanations uh, for this, uh, such as he was on sandbars. Uh, one guy actually said that the, the lake was frozen at that time of year. But might I suggest that this text that we have before us is also in the book of John, and it's also in the book of Matthew. In fact, what's very interesting is Mark is Peter's recollection his view of the events. And yet it's Matthew that tells us about Peter himself in this event walking on the water. Not, not Peter saying this. And we'll look and see why this is so uh, in a moment. But I was very tempted to move from Mark to go to Matthew. But my wife, who believes in exegetical preaching, which means if you're a Presbyterian, you preach through the text. She said, you must preach on this text. And so I'm glad she asked me to do that. Because uh, this text really deals with something that's not about Peter walking on the water. And obviously that's important. Matthew thought it was, but it wasn't to Peter. There's something much more important here going on. Now one other thing to say before we read our text uh, is this business about miracles. We live in a scientific culture. Uh, we um, are inundated with uh, Believing things that we see and try to measure them. And so I think it's important to address uh, the importance of understanding miracles in the Bible. C.S. Lewis put it this way. In science we have been reading only the notes to a point. But in Christianity we find the poem itself. He went on to say that miracles do not, in fact, break the laws of nature. And let me tell you what I think he means by that. There's, there's what we call ordinary means, that God uses ordinary means as providence, so we're all here today. But there's also extraordinary means that God in his providence sometimes breaks in to show that he's Lord of the creation. So the very fact that you were conceived so many years ago and that you have a body, but you also have a soul that can never die. Who can explain that? But C.S. Lewis uh, says this, and, and, and I want this is a beautiful quote, and I want you to consider this before we read our text, and you're going to have to use what they call, maybe you're not a believer, I don't know, but how about using what they call the, what is it, the su suspended animation of disbelief. But C.S. Lewis says, an impersonal God, well and good. At least you believe in God. 
a subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, the triune God, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, and the husband. Now that is quite a different matter. And this is the God that we'll read about in our text today. So turn with me, if you would, to your bulletin. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to, to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the water. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed, they came to the land of Gesenareth and moored to the the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as he touched, touched it, were made well. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us hearts to believe. We cannot believe. Apart from your grace, we cannot see you unless you reveal yourself. And Lord, the fact of the matter is that all of us here, man, woman, child, Christian, non-Christian, we have hearts that tend to harden against you and against the truth. And sometimes we move toward darkness rather than toward the light because of our own unbelief. And when we do see you operate and we see you act, uh, sometimes we're terrified rather than comforted because we do not see you as a father who cares for us. And so, Lord, we ask for all of us here today, including myself, Lord, that you would give us grace to see you and to move toward you. And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. A lot of you know I used to be a campus minister like uh, Justin Clement. I did RUF, which is the PCA's, the Presbyterian Church's college ministry, 
from 1985 to 1996 before I came here. And uh, every summer at the, at the end of the year, we would run two weeks of camp and hundreds of students would come. Now I think thousands of students are coming. And what we would do during that week is we'd have a plenary speaker, a speaker who would preach in the mornings and the evenings. They'd have their afternoons off, but uh, later in the morning we would have breakout classes, seminars. And we'd have different subjects. And so the campus ministers, uh, they would be given a a subject, and and we'd teach students. We'd have 70, 80 students in the seminars. And and the seminars range from just the doctrine of justification, what is sanctification, marriage, sex, and dating, um, devotional life. But the seminar that you could always count that every student would sign up, and they would rush to this table to sign up, was knowing God's will could count on it. First one to fill up, even above marriage, sex, and dating. And so over the years, as I saw this phenomenon, and I was asked to teach sometimes that class, uh, the first thing that I would tell all the students when they gathered in and we began, uh, I would tease them and say that you are the narcissistic students. You're, you're, you're the self-centered students. And, uh, and the reason I would tell them that, and I'd say, of course, not to mention everybody else wanted in the seminar, is because when you think about what it means to know God and to know God's will, you're thinking about it more in terms of uh, someone who goes to see a fortune teller. What is my future? What's, am I going to get married? Am, am I going to have children? What am I going to do with my life? Because in essence, you're wanting to be in control of your life. Or like the person. The person who reads the horoscopes, right? You, they wake up and they go, okay, I'm a Sagittarius or I'm a Taurus and, and what's going to happen to my life today? And so what I try to point out to them that there are two aspects of God's will. You're wanting to know one aspect of God's will that you cannot know. That's why you're in here. You want to know the decrees of God. And the decrees of God are what God has planned, Okay. That God has sovereignly, according to our confession and according to the, to the scriptures, has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, if he has not done that, then he's not worth being here to worship today. And then in, it tells us in, in, the, in the chapter on the providence of God, that after God creates and he has decreed things and things are working their way out, the providence of God is that he governs all their creatures and all their actions from the least to the greatest. And the reason all the prophecies that we read over the Advent season became true is not because God looked out there and saw that there would be a baby named Jesus born and therefore he could tell it. It was always his plan. But I would point out to them, we can't know that. I didn't know when I was their age how many kids I have. I've got four. Now I hope I'm not going to have any more. But I don't know how many grandchildren I'm going to have. I hope I have a bunch of them. And then they take care of them. But so I can't know that, right? You can't know that. You don't know the day that you'll die. This, the, just uh, this week, we lost uh, uh, Stan Edwards' mother. And within a few hours before that, we lost uh, Gail Coleman's father. They both knew the Lord. They went on to be with the Lord. But they didn't know that was coming. But God did. But on the other hand, uh, I would say, now here's what I do want to talk to you about. is what you can know. And what you can know is God's precepts. God's law, that God has called us 
as, as His people, or, or as people, period, to understand what it means to be created in His image, to know His law, to love His law, to honor another person's body so we don't have affairs, that we don't steal and we don't cheat. <laughs> and so that's what I want to talk to you students about. And then you see this glazed look. And, and I know what they were thinking. I wish I had signed up for the sex and dating class. <laughs> and he's going to tell me I have to behave. Why are we like this? Why is it that we want to know more about what's going to happen in our lives and how do I, how do I understand how to have a successful life? How, how do I understand who God is in such a way that I can ultimately be in control of my life and Him not in control of my life? Why is it rather we think that way than, God, I want to know who you are. I got a lot of ideas about you. I'm sure they're not all right. But I know this. I know that your scriptures have told us that you have loved us so much that you gave your son to be crucified, the blood of God shed to redeem me, to not live for myself, not to decide I'm just going to be angry with my wife. Or I'm going to really do what I want to do. But God, I have no idea what submitting to you and what you want me to be like is going to cost me in my life. But you see, I think uh, this is what Peter is driving at. Because you, the, the question is, why are we like this? Why is it that we... Why is it that we're more interested in how we can control God rather than submitting to Him? And Peter basically teaches us in this text, it is because our hearts are hardened. We have a tendency uh, to move away from God rather than toward Him. Would y'all agree with that? I'm talking about if you're not, I'm not just talking to non-Christians, but I'm talking to us who are believers that rather than our hearts uh, yielding to Christ, they have a tendency to harden. And so God is constantly, right, having to deal with your heart today that you came in here with it being hardened to soften your heart. I think that's exactly what our text is trying to teach us. And that God lovingly, consistently, constantly is putting us in places that softens our hearts because we are constantly putting ourselves in places that actually harden our hearts against God and His purpose. I think we'll see this in our text. And so here's the, here's the three things I want to say before we come to, to the Lord's table. First, I think uh, what uh, Mark's trying to teach us is this. Our hearts keep us from seeking to know God for who He really is. Hard hearts want to create a God in, your, in our own image, right? I'd be curious as to, to see what your views of God are. And it's in the storms, it's in the stuff that God takes us into that it starts bringing it out of us. Secondly, our hard hearts always seek their own agenda. I know a lot of godly people in this church. I do. They love Jesus Christ. But boy, we have our conversations, don't we? About, am I deceived? I think I want to know you. I think I want to submit to you. But maybe really what I want is a bigger church. Maybe what I really want is, is that God would kind of save my marriage from going down the hole or save me financially. 
And then the last thing is to see is this. To submit our lives to God is for him to constantly, constantly, but graciously deal with our constantly hardening hearts. So here's the first thing. Our hearts tend toward hardening, that tend toward hardening, keep us from knowing God for who he really is. Now, the way I'm going to show you this, I want to show you a couple of verses that are here in our text, uh, but I have to put them in a context. Um, because it's not as easy to see. But there are other places that teach this very clearly. That our hearts, because they're hardening, keeping us from knowing God for who he really is. Now, let me tell you where you can find this. In Romans chapter 1. And, and so I just want to read Romans chapter 1. And uh, Romans chapter 1 says this. For the wrath of God has revealed, been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has, made, has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that you and I are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darken. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God has given them up in the loss of their hearts to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for us, for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, there, there's a text right there that pretty much says that we know who God is, but we suppress the truth. That's what our hearts are like. And the reason we suppress the truth is because we want to create a God that we can control versus the other way around. Now, let me tell you, at seminary, there's this great debate in terms of how to share the gospel with people, uh, in which you might call apologetics. Some people call, some, some are what they call evidentialists, others are what they call presuppositionalists. Who are the evidentialists? The evidentialists are, well, people are reasonable. So you learn all the evidence, and you begin to engage people's intellect, and you make it reasonable. And the presuppositionalist says, and I think what this text says, is it doesn't matter what evidence you give people and how clear you can articulate it because of our hearts that are not neutral, okay? They are sinful hearts, Christian and non-Christian. We are bent away from seeing God for who he really is and to create a God in our own mind that always, always disappoints. You say, wow, okay, that's great. Where do you see that in our text? Well, let me tell you what's going on in our text. Uh, Jesus, right after he feeds the 5,000, commands 
And you see this in every one of the Gospels. He commands his disciples to get in the boat. Did you see that? He's very direct. He says, get in the boat, go to the other side. Now, why does he do that? Because what has been happening is Jesus is revealing himself, revealing himself. People are beginning to see him as the Messiah. Uh, the, the talk is going around out there. In fact, the reason I read to the end of the chapter, you remember when they got to the other side, how all the people in the center, they were bringing people, and the message was going out about Jesus Christ. It was the very place that six months earlier with the demoniac that we preached on, they said, get away from here. And now they're saying, the, the report is going out. Now, why does Jesus disperse the disciples? Because they, according to most commentators, they themselves were getting caught up in who the Messiah is. They themselves have just, right before the feeding of the 5,000, they had been sent out. By Jesus. And they themselves, including Judas Iscariot, were seeing great fruit from preaching the gospel and were also doing miracles. And there was this incredible excitement that was there. And so Jesus disperses the crowd and tells them to go home because they would make him a king. And what does he do with the disciples? He tells them to get in the boat and to leave. Why? Because... John the Baptist and the disciples, and we've said this over and over and over again as we go through the Gospels, they wanted an earthly king. Right? Isn't that what you want? That really what Jesus is going to do when you come to Christ, that everything in this life is going to be good. Come on now. And the real reason that you come to Redeemer Presbyterian Church is not to go, oh, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, crucified for my sins, raised from the dead. I come here Sunday to give my life to him. Submit to him no matter what it costs me. You know why we come here? Maybe Redeemer will be the place that solves my marital problems. Right? Maybe this will be the place if I come, then I, I'll know my business will be okay and, and my finances will be okay. And life will be okay for me. Because I want to tell you why I know you think that way. Because I think that way. I don't know what 2013 will bring to you. But I tell you what, I hope is smooth sailing. I'm sorry. I hope all y'all behave this year. We all get along. But we don't know, do we? Well, it's very interesting here according to the commentators. Not only does he disperse the disciples and send them away to get them away from this frenzy that's there because it's not right and hardened hearts always want to create the Messiah and your image. You know what they say? He goes to the mountains to pray and the reason he prays is not just because, yeah, I'm going to send them out into the storm and I'm going to pray for them. I'm sure he did that. But you know what most, a lot of commentators say? The reason that Jesus went to the mountain is because since he is a human being along with the God-man the, 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 in two distinct, two distinct natures in one person, that as a human being, he had to go and pray and ask for the God to give him the grace to continue to be this man who would suffer, the God-man who would suffer. Very tempting, you see. And you say, well, come on, how is Jesus tempted? Was, was that not the temptation in the wilderness? 
And then here it comes again. But we see Jesus going to the mountain. Why does he go to the mountain? Because he is the second Moses. He is the greater than Moses. But when he comes down the mountain, he comes down the mountain as a suffering servant, not to bring the law, but to bring grace. Because the greatest thing that you need this morning, let me tell you, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need his mercy and his grace. So hardened hearts tend to create God in your own image. But the second thing to see from our text is this, that our hard hearts tend to seek our own agenda. Now I'm telling you, I've got my agenda for 2013, and let me tell you what's not on the agenda, not being in control. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, my agenda this year is to suffer. No matter what it takes, I want to suffer for Jesus Christ. You know what your agenda is and my agenda is? The children are safe. The money's in the bank. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to get married, and I'll finally have that child. You say, where do you see this in the text? Well, notice it says in verse 47, And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the lows. But their hearts were hardened. Now, what is our agenda? i tell you what their agenda was. Their agenda was to get the other side. <laughs> Let's get about the business of the kingdom when we're all going to be in with Jesus and, and we're going to reign with Christ here in Jerusalem and we're going to run the Romans out. And you know what he says? He says, get in the boat. Go to the other side. And yes, did, did, did he bring the storm? There's no question about that. But what's really going on here that God wants to teach us today to get rid of your agendas? And by the way, there are good agendas, right? There are good agendas, like pay the bills, try to save some money, and uh, so on and so forth, to be righteous people. Now, a lot of people say, you know, you hear sermons, that well, this is about Jesus coming in the storms of life. And I bet some of you really have some storms that are brewing. I have no doubt about that. It, you know, the old saying, you're either just got out of one, you're going into one, or, or uh, you're getting ready to go into one, or you're in one, one of those three, something like that. You've heard it a thousand times. Well, I don't think that's what, the, what he's trying to get at here. I, I, don't, I don't think that's not true. But as I study this text, and this is why I think, thankfully my wife said, no, you need to preach this text. I think Peter has uh, two things in mind. And the two things that he has in mind, we see in what we just read. And the first is this. It says that in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., after they had been rowing and rowing in what should have taken them about three hours, and they got in the boat, let's say 7 o'clock at night, now it's 3 to 4 in the morning, 
and the hours are later, and they're making no headway. They are worn out. There is a sense that there is no hope, right? We're done. But what is curious that Peter or Mark puts here is when it says, and Jesus went by. Does that kind of strike you all as odd? I kind of have this picture of Dorothy, you know, in the house rolling around in, in the tornado. And then she's seeing all this weird stuff go by. And then all of a sudden there's the Wicked Witch of the West. And she's riding her biker and then it turns into a broom. And remember, she looks at Dorothy and she's terrified. That's not what it means here. Let me tell you what Peter's referring to. And this is why Peter is not bringing himself out, I think, in the text about him walking in the water. What struck him was this, that he is referring to Exodus 33. You see, the Bible always ties together. And Jesus is a greater than Moses. But you remember, Moses was a deliverer. And he's trying to bring the people out of bondage into the promised land. He's in the wilderness and he's quite discouraged. And he asks God, he says, God, if you are to take us there, I must know that you are here. I must, without your presence, I don't want to go. And this in, in, in Exodus chapter 33, where the Lord says to Moses, Moses, I will reveal myself to you. And I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass by, you'll behold my glory. Peter was well aware, and, and, and most commentators, and I agree, as I've looked at this text, that is exactly what is going on here. That Jesus is the greater than Moses, the God in the flesh, this time not on the boat as it was earlier, right, in Mark chapter 4, but now he is outside the boat walking upon the waves in the storm. And they beheld his glory. Now I want to ask you something. Have you ever beheld his glory? You know, uh, it's, it's one thing to hear about the dividing of the Red Sea. It's nothing to hear the stories. But as God revealed himself to you in the midst of the stuff of life to show you that he, he transcends all your problems. And you know that you've been in the presence of God. Has that happened to your life? I know when I was a student, not a student, but I was a campus minister at Mississippi State. And my wife and I were living on oatmeal, cornmeal, and missile meal. And uh, we're so broke we couldn't pay attention, as my dad used to say. But I'm not asking my daddy for the money. I'm married. I have two kids. I have a ministry. God has exceedingly blessed the ministry. I don't have food to put on the table. There is no money. And quite discouraged. And you know what? I began to doubt. And you're ministering to students who drive BMWs and, you know, go to the movies and you're just trying to figure out how to put lentil beans on the table. And I remember I had a particular bill that was X amount. I can't remember what it was. And I said, Lord, I'm a good Presbyterian. I know you're sovereign, but you know what? I need to see you like show up. And this is what I need. 
And Greg Triplett, you're a Mississippi State graduate. I went in that mail room, sitting up underneath that old building. And I go to my mailbox, and I open the mailbox, and get there. You never know, even heard the checks in the mail. And I, by the way, I don't highly recommend you, you operate. You use ordinary means, like go to work, save your money. <laughs> I really recommend that. Biden doesn't have any money to save. And I'm not calling my daddy. I'm not calling her daddy. But I'm calling on my Heavenly Father. I'm like, God, if you're there, I need something to happen. Guess what? I open it up, checks in the mail. And the checks in the mail for exactly what I needed. Now, let me tell you why I tell you that story. I felt so sinful at that moment. And the reason I felt so sinful is because of my unbelief. I didn't expect there to be a check in the mail. But all of a sudden, heaven kisses earth, and the realities of the sovereignty of God is alive. That happened in your life? Are you constantly trying to get your life because your hearts are hardened so you don't have to be in that situation, so you don't have to see God show up? I got it under control. Friends, let me tell you, the blessing of God is when he puts you out in that storm because one day you will suck your last breath. And all your education and all your money and whatever it is you've accomplished will not help you at that time. And that is the ultimate storm. That God weans us to himself in his love to show us his glory now that he is sovereign even over death. But there's another reason that Peter records, not only to see the glory of God, but to show why God did what he did and put them in the storm. It was because their hearts were hardened. Unbelief. Now let me ask you this, believer and unbeliever. Well, let me ask you of an unbeliever first. Do you feel like your heart's hardening even now? Boy, I hope not. Because the word hardened in the, in the Greek, it literally means to turn crusty. And the way you would keep the, the, the stuff, to, the, the clay to mold, was you keep putting water upon it. You put the lubricants upon it so it can continue to be shaped into what God wants it to be. But if God chooses to allow you to go your way, your heart will so harden that it will cry, be crushed. Now let me ask you a Christian. Is that happening in your heart? You say, well, how would I know? Let me, I, let me tell you how you know. Let me tell you how you know. Every Sunday morning, we come in here to worship God, and we say the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do not say, my will be done. My kingdom come. What do we pray every Sunday? Hallowed be your name. The sovereign God who came under the law, who gave the law to be crucified for us. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And you go, I, I don't know what this year it will bring. Maybe I'll lose my good looks. How about that? Maybe I'll lose my money. Maybe I'll lose my spouse. Maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe I'll be sued. Come what may, I submit to you. Now, if you don't do that, I don't think you're a Christian. Sorry. And, and we need revival. You, you not may need to be saved this morning. You've been coming to Redeemer. You've been hearing the gospel. You've been hearing the gospel. You've been hearing the gospel. But you're still living in sin. 
But I'm not just talking about, man, I, I not love my wife the way I need to. I'm just talking about you're being sent into the depths of addictions or pornography or our hatred. And you need to repent. God is maybe bringing the storms in your life right now so that you might repent of your sin and see his glory coming upon the waters to save you from your sin. Now, one last thing is not only our hearts that are hard keep us from seeking the God who's really there, our hearts also are always seeking our own agenda. My will be done, not your will be done. But here's the last thing to see. To submit our lives to God is for him to constantly but graciously deal with your hard hearts. You understand? He's constantly wanting to deal with your hard heart. Notice what it says in verse, uh, verse 51 or verse 52. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Let me tell you how this is meaningful to me. I, I'm so thankful. Yeah, I'm a minister, right? And I want y'all to know I love Jesus Christ. I do. I've loved Jesus ever since he converted me. But not so much. Not as I should, not as I desire. I want to. You, you feel like that, Christian? That you're saying, Lord, whatever it is is keeping me from being what I should be, to be like Jesus Christ to my wife and to my kids and to my church members and trusting him. And Lord, if you want me to be a martyr, if you want me to shed my blood for you, okay, not so much. Our hearts are prone to wonder, aren't they? Like that song says, prone to leave the God I love. Can I give you an example, and before I close, of one example of how your pastor is thankful that Jesus Christ is constantly working in my life. I saw Le Miz. Anybody seen Le Miz? Oh, man. Ooh. You got to go sit. Now, okay, and if you, for some of you guys, they sing all the way through it, okay? But, but you got to listen to the words. Extremely moved. I give it a 10, okay? I'm not a movie critic. I give it a 10. 10 being good, right? I, 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 I weep several times. You know, there, there's a part where he's in the sewer and, uh, and, he, and he lifts up uh, his uh, future son-in-law out, out of the sewer. He's dead in, in, in the dung. And I think of Jesus lifting me up. So I'm very moved. And here's this guy, Jean Valjean, who's touched by the grace of God and he's gracious to everybody. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be gracious this weekend. <laughs> and I wasn't. Uh, my wife made me mad about something. Probably my fault. So I went to buy it and go back and apologize. You know how you, when you go apologize, they go, oh, no problem. I'm not saying my wife did anything wrong, okay? Mary Beth don't hear me saying that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I hard my heart more. And, uh, and, I, and I thought to myself, well, movies can't change me. Music can't change me. The Bible can't change me. The only thing that can change me, the only thing that can change you, is the Holy Spirit. 
And you must be born again. Or you will be a reformed Christian who wants God to ignore you, and he will forever. You teenagers at Redeemer, it's time now to no longer be cynical. It's time for you to submit your life to Jesus Christ. You kids are in, in middle school. It's time for you to listen to sermons. It's time for you to believe that Jesus Christ is showing up. And when we do the communion, something majestic is taking place. Would you do that this morning? And oh, you believer, oh, you unbeliever, whose heart is so hardened, you will perish in your sin. Unless God has mercy upon your soul. And would you repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ and know life? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table, the question is, how can we day in and day out submit ourselves to you? Well, Lord Jesus, because when you needed the Father's hand, it was not there. You are cursed for us so that we might never know the curse of God. And so, Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself to all of us today? that we would see you in the beauty of who you are. That you lost the Father so we could have the Father. And that you were raised as the great sign that our sins are forgiven and all things are made new. Lord, would you forgive us for our hardening hearts. And Father, the most hardened that's here today, I pray that you would take the hammer of your law and the oils of your grace and shatter it. And they can come today and take communion in repentance and faith in Christ. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.